a member or a visitor. We have quite a few visitors here with us today, and Danny already mentioned this, but I was going to say it too. It really is good to see Joe Ed back here with us today. We're always happy when someone who's uh, been out of commission here for weeks or months is able to be back here with us, and uh, we're, we're thankful that uh, all of this the prayers that this congregation has made on his behalf have been answered thus far and that he continues to progress. And whoever you are, we're happy that you're here today. And I hope the time we spend here together will be strengthening and, and uplifting for all of us. If you have your Bible, you might want to open it up to the 10th chapter of Hebrews. That's where we'll find the text we want to look at together and work our way through for a few minutes this morning. When you get up, in the morning, you start your day. What hopes do you have for it? When you look from beginning to end, what do you intend to accomplish? What are you aiming at? What's your purpose in life? What direction do you have? Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I don't think about things that way. I just get up in the morning and I do whatever I have to do. I understand that. I'm as guilty of that as anyone is, just mindlessly repeating one day after another. And yet, I'm convinced that that's not really the way God intends for us to live. Scripture, including our text, indicates that God intends for us to aim at something significant in our days. His will isn't that we just drift aimlessly along through life as a victim of circumstances, but he wants us to aim at something. As someone once said, we need to begin each day as if it were on purpose. Aimlessness is akin to lifelessness. Think about leaves in the backyard. Now those dead leaves might have more movement, more motion in them than just about anything. The wind blows them one way and, and they go. And then it changes direction and they go the other way. They bounce, they tumble, they skip, they press against the fence. But they have no direction of their own. They have movement, they have energy. But they're dead. They're lifeless. God did not create us to be aimless like leaves blowing around the backyard of life. He created us to be purposeful, to do whatever it is we set out to do with all of our might and with all of his might. Think about what the Apostle Paul says, for example, in a letter he writes to the Colossian church regarding his relentless desire to preach and to teach. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's Colossians 1.29. Or think about what Jesus says in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. That comparison to food is particularly interesting, I think. Just like food, an aim, a purpose in life is what gives us energy. It's what gives us vitality. So let's consider for just a few moments together this morning what these three verses in Hebrews chapter 10 have to teach us about our aim or our purpose in lives as Christians. 
First of all, in verse number 23, the writer tells us to embrace our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, when we talk about embracing our hope, this isn't something that you literally do with your hands. We can't go to some part of the house or the office or school or across the street to accomplish this. In fact, it's not something that's visible in that sense at all. This is something that's internal. It's a matter of the heart. Hold fast to your hope, the writer says. Embrace it. Be a hope-filled person. That should define us as Christians. We talked about hope last Sunday evening in our one-word series of lessons, Hope Was the Word of the Week. We hope because God has made promises and He's faithful. Think about a song that we sing. This comes straight out of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That steadfast love, that is his hesed, his covenant faithfulness, the fact that God wills the good for you and he's going to do good to you and be faithful and true to you. Therefore, I will hope in him. I have hope in God because I know he keeps his promises. That reminds me of my favorite biblical definition of faith. When somebody asks what faith is, usually we go to Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But I think the best practical definition and my favorite definition of faith comes from Romans chapter 4, verse 21, where we're talking there about Abraham's story, and Paul says that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's faith, being fully convinced or persuaded that God will keep his promises. Abraham and Sarah were old. The promise here in particular is that child that they're going to have. And yet, despite the fact that by our own natural minds, there was no way that possibly could have or should have happened, Abraham was convinced that if God said he could do it, if he promised it, then he would. That's the same confidence, the same faith that we should have. And that gives us hope. So what has he promised us? Well, there are a lot of things we could look at here, but just think about the immediately preceding context. You go back to verse number 14. He's promised to perfect his people for all time with a single sacrifice. In verse number 16, quoting here from the prophet Jeremiah, he's promised to write his law on our hearts. In the next verse, verse 17, he's promised to forgive our sins, to remember our iniquities no more. You go forward a little bit from this chapter. Chapter 12, verse number 10, he promises that even our suffering can produce good fruit, just like disciplining a child. Or towards the end of the book, chapter 13, he promises that he will equip us to do every good work. He will even work within us himself. And of course, if we're talking about our, our ultimate source of hope, you look towards the end of chapter 10, and in several verses, he talks about the fact there that it's the consummation of his purpose, our eternal rest, the resurrection from the dead. The writer says there in verse 35, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He says, yet a little while, the coming one's going to come. You need to have faith, and you need to persevere. But even if that's our ultimate source of hope, 
that might not provide us with sufficient focus in our daily lives. After all, that seems like a, a long way off. When the Lord comes back and when all the dead are raised, we don't know when that's going to happen. It might not happen in our lifetimes. That seems somewhat impractical to give us hope on a daily basis. And God doesn't intend for us to just curl up under the covers and hope all day. He doesn't intend for us to be like some that we read about uh, in Thessalonica, for instance, who were hoping so much in the Lord coming back that they'd just stop living, essentially. They'd stop working. Or like people we've read about in our own history who think that Jesus is coming back and so they dress all in white and they go and stand on a mountaintop and they wait for him. That's not the way that our hope is supposed to manifest itself. It needs to be evident in intangible, visible action. God wants us first to hope in him and then to demonstrate that in the way that we live. So how do we do that? Well, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Here's a focus for us. Here's a summary of what we aim at as Christians. And I want you to notice that it's not what we might think that we should be aiming at. It's not a focus for us to love and to do good works, even though we should be doing that. Certainly that's right, and that's biblical, and that's important. But now this isn't about us and what we need to do in terms of the love and good works. We need to see how we can stir up love and good works in others. We might use a word here that we sometimes use, edification. That's another one of those words that we use in church that we don't use often in other contexts. Edification literally means building up. It's where we get the term edifice from, the same root, building a structure. That word isn't used here, but that's what we're talking about, to stir up love, to stir up good works. That's the edification that we need to focus upon with each other. Focus on helping your brothers and sisters to become loving people. Aim at stirring up good works in them. And, of course, the implication is that if you need help in having that love and those good works stirred up, I need it too. I need you to help me stir up those, that love and those good works in me. So the aim of our lives isn't just loving and it isn't just doing good. It's helping others to love and to do good. In particular here, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. But let's be even a little bit more precise here. The, the verb here in this verse, let us consider. Consider translates a really difficult concept to bring into English because it evokes not only uh, visual but also uh, mental connotations. It's comprehensive here. So the idea is to, to pay close, careful attention to. It's used one other time in Hebrews, back in chapter 3 and verse number 1. And the writer says there that we need to consider Jesus. So the idea in considering Jesus there is to think about him, to focus on him, to study him, to reflect on him, to have our minds occupied with him. The grammar is the very same here in chapter 10, verse 24. And the object of that consideration is each other. We consider one another. That's why, for instance, if you have a King James Version, what it says there is consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. 
Now, that's an awkward thought when we bring it into English. That's what I mean about it being difficult to translate. Consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. That's good Greek word order, but that's really not the most readable English. It reminds me of the translation work I used to do when I was in school, where it's technically right, but uh, you wouldn't want to write it down that way because it's just not very clear. And so that's why we see in the English Standard, the translation I read a moment ago, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And yet, even though that's better English, that kind of loses some of the focus of the original because the object here isn't really how we stir up the love and good works, it's each other. Consider one another. Consider your brother. Consider your sister. Focus on them, study them, reflect on them, let your mind be occupied with them with the goal that you figure out how to stir up love and good works in them. That's the goal of that focus. But the focus, the consideration, is on them. There are probably a lot of days when we feel aimless. You ever feel like that? Get up in the morning and you wonder, What's the point? You just sort of go through the motions. Why, why do I have to go to work? Or why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to study? And so we just try to go from one diversion to another all through the day. We, you know, nowadays we pick up the smartphone and we, we get on Facebook and we check it or Twitter or we check our email, whatever. We're just constantly trying to distract ourselves because we feel like there's really no point in what we're doing. Well, instead of that, why don't we endeavor each day to consider, that is to ponder, to think about, to mull over, to meditate deeply on our Christian family with the goal of thinking about how can I stir up love in that brother? How can I help that sister to go out and to do some good in the world? Now that's a focus. And that's something that can occupy all of our lives because People change, circumstances change, we change, but we always have this obligation to go out and to do that. The call remains the same. Consider each other. Try to help each other along in loving one another and in doing these good works. That's a purpose that's narrow enough, it's focused enough to be practical, but that's big and wide enough that you're never going to be finished with that throughout the rest of your life. How can we go about doing that? That brings us to verse number 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Two things here. One, don't neglect to meet together. And two, secondly, encourage one another. We most often historically have taken this verse as a command for attendance at the worship of the church. Don't forsake the assembly. That's the way we apply it, which of course is not actually what the verse says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That's the King James. But we interpret that as don't forsake the assembly. We boil this down to a particular time and place, and the forsaking is missing a service. Well, that's not exactly a, a wrong application of this text. One of the most important times of encouragement we get is when we come together as God's people and we worship him. 
But it's an application that, on the one hand, is too wide in terms of applying forsaking to missing a service, sort of a legalistic application. But on the other hand, it's too narrow in that it applies it only to the Sunday morning assembly of the church. This isn't really what we're talking about here. It it robs the verse of its force, and it misses the point of the context. This isn't a command to you, the individual, not to skip church services. This is a command to the church, all of us. Don't stop meeting together. Now, that might be on Sunday morning, but it might not be. This is comprehensive of, of all the times that we get together as God's people. And when you come together, encourage one another. There's something mutual going on. One encourages another. Another encourages one. That's certainly not exclusively limited to the worship assembly. It's probably not even the best example of it. Now, I think preaching is pretty important, obviously, or I wouldn't be doing it. But I'm not under any illusions that this is a one-stop shop for all of your needs, that you're going to get everything you need here from a sermon once a week. And I hope that you're not under any illusions about that because that's not what I'm here to do. The New Testament calls us again and again and again to a kind of mutual ministry that involves all of us involved in a life together. So take stock where we are here in verse 25. You notice there are those who gather together to encourage one another. And there are those who, as the writer says, have formed that habit of not getting together. Now, that could be for Sunday morning services, sure. But you're all here today. (laughs) I don't really need to tell you about the importance of attending Sunday morning services if you're here. Presumably, you, you know about that. But it could be for something like getting together and singing together, like we had in our recent workshop a couple of weeks ago, or like we're having this afternoon at 5 o'clock. That's an important time of encouragement. I know those lessons were taught about how when we sing, we encourage each other. And I know that everyone who was here for those lessons certainly felt that encouragement. I think all of us can attest to that. It could be other times of fellowship when we strengthen those bonds of brotherhood, things like our our prayer breakfast that we had yesterday, or like the ladies' Bible class that gets together once a week, or like the crawfish boil we had last weekend, or on and on we could go with these sorts of things. It could be other less scheduled times. It doesn't have to be something that we organize here at the church. We could just be talking about a handful of us getting together at somebody's house or or going by and, and paying a visit to someone, spending some time with them. The point is we need to be sharing our life together, getting together with one another. And if you're not doing that, this is a much bigger problem than just not checking off your box. Well, I, I attended the assembly this week. I didn't forsake it. That's not what this is about at all. If we're not getting together like that, effectively what I'm saying is, I'm saying, Danny, I don't care about you. I know that you got struggles in life. I know you need encouragement. I don't care. And more than that, you're saying, I don't need any of you because I got this. I love like I should. I do good works like I should, and I don't need you to encourage me. Oh, this is a much more significant teaching than just about the importance of attendance on Sunday morning. I know that things happen in life. I know that uh, 
we all have many different obligations, and I don't think this verse is telling us you need to be here each and every time. Life gets in the way. But if being with your brothers and sisters, whether on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or all those other times, just living life together throughout the week isn't one of your priorities, that's a big heart problem. It's a lot bigger than just skipping out on a service. A final question is, what kind of encouragement stirs up love and good works? It's not obvious to everyone that that has anything to do with God. Wouldn't you agree that there's a lot of people in the world who aren't Christians at all who think that loving others and doing good, those are, those are pretty good things. We should all try to do that. And there are a lot of people who might even encourage others to love and to do good works. They might not be Christians, or they might be Christians of a, professing Christians of a certain sort that we see a lot of today in the, the popular religious world, where really it's just sort of the power of positive thinking dressed up as Christianity. I'm good enough, and I'm smart enough, and I can do it. A lot of religions try to stimulate love and good works that way. But that isn't the biblical way. The key to stirring up love and good works was given back in verse 23, where we started. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. The key to love, the New Testament kind of love that magnifies God, not us, is hope rooted in God's faithfulness. And that brings us all back around here full circle. Embrace your hope. Cherish your hope because you know that God's faithful. He keeps his promises. Without that hope sustaining us day by day through all our frustrations, through all of our disappointments, we wouldn't have the energy or the joy to stir up love and good works in anyone. But if we trust God and not ourselves, well, then we always have something that's encouraging because we know that God is faithful. God can be trusted. Let's close with an illustration that comes just a few verses later here in this chapter. We think about the difficulties in life. How, how would you try to encourage your fellow Christians if you were facing persecution? If some had even been imprisoned? That's what we see in verses 32 and 33. And the rest knew that they were in danger too. How could you encourage them if you were facing potentially loss of property, loss of prestige, loss even of your life? Where would you get the courage to do that? Verse 34, you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They did go visit them, and they got in big trouble. They lost their property. Where did they get that courage? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They embraced their hope in God above anything in this present. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. That's what encouraged them to risk everything. And that's our source of hope as well. Let's make the aim of our lives, to consider our brothers and sisters, to think about them, to focus on them, to study them and figure them out with an aim of how we might provoke them to love and to do good works.
let's be sure that we're getting together often with our fellow Christians in a variety of contexts with the goal of encouraging each other. And let the source of that encouragement always be the hope that we have in Christ and the knowledge that God can be trusted. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't have that hope. You're apart from God and without hope in this world. And so I'd urge you before you leave today to put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, to turn to God in repentance, to be buried with the Lord in the waters of baptism, have your sins washed away, be added to his people, and have that hope, that confident expectation of resurrection from the dead, eternal life with the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you haven't been focused in your life like you ought. Don't be aimless anymore. If you need to make changes today, whatever your need may be, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and sing. Never dies my darkest 